Okay, so you may have seen. Uh, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> you may have seen the program this evening from women to women about privacy. So the, the program is three presenters. Uh, Mrs. Weingro is presenting as a privacy lawyer, and uh, some of the news in the world of the realities of privacy, um, specifically as they were instigated by and relate to COVID. Um, I will be talking a little bit about the halacha, and then Mrs. Epstein is going to be talking about the mystical and religious aspects thereof. So I figured it would be appropriate to... uh, uh, I'm only going to have 20 minutes tonight, so now we have a little bit longer and we can uh, review in more detail. Um, so, in Yiddishkeit, uh, sorry, just a second, in Halacha, uh, certainly privacy, Sneas, privacy is an extremely important value. And there are numerous halachas which uh, teach us this. Um, second. So we're all familiar, we've, I'm sure we've all heard or somewhat familiar with the concept of Cherem Darabinu Gershom. Cherem Darabinu Gershom is a, literally a ban of excommunication, which is placed upon anybody who um, peers into a letter or communication that was not uh, designated for him or herself. Um, there's some discussion as to why do we need this mitz, this chayim the Rabbeinu Gershom? Would it or, or would, would it not be prohibited otherwise? And has been suggested that actually peering at some of these letters would be perhaps even a violation of the biblical mitzvah of the seilich racha ba'amecha of uh, gossiping and spying on other people. And that was, of course, the case long before Rabbeinu Geshem came along. Rabbeinu Geshem was about a thousand years ago, but a little bit more, a um, hundred years ago. And uh, but, but 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 perhaps this was something which was lax, and um, people uh, it had to sort of be uh, a boost in the in this in, in, in people pref- uh, respecting other people's privacy. So that's one um, <coughs> that's one important point which we'll get back to. Now, it has been said that a big difference between the Torah's approach to privacy versus the modern legal or Western uh, moral approach to privacy is um, that they're really polar opposites. In American society, we perceive privacy 
as being a privilege that I'm entitled to privacy and you dare not invade my state, my, my entitlement, you dare not infringe on my entitlement. Whereas in halacha, it's viewed as a responsibility, that I have a responsibility to make sure not to invade somebody else's privacy. So, um, I want to learn with you a Mishnah, which um, um, certainly serves to illustrate these, these points. Uh, these points. So the Mishnah is Mishnah is in the beginning of Bava Basra. Mishnah starts off by saying, Bob, can I try me for the tissues? Thank you. The mission starts off by saying, It's forbidden, one may not construct windows that will face a jointly owned courtyard. So let's say I have a house opening into a courtyard. On the other side of the courtyard, there's another house where somebody else lives and he is opened into the same courtyard. And the courtyard is shared space between us. We both have, let's say, equal rights to that courtyard. So I'm not allowed to build... Um, I'm not allowed to build... Uh, windows um, into build, uh, that open into his uh, in, in, into that shared courtyard. So um, the first thing to notice is that uh, wh- why am I not allowed to open the the windows? Because uh, but not oh it doesn't mean open build construct a window. Why am I not allowed to construct a window facing the courtyard? Because that would invade on the other person's privacy when he's in the courtyard, and then I can peek out and look at what he's doing. Right? You know that courtyard is for both. Oh, so well, exactly. So the first thing that's that's striking in this Gemara is that we both have equal rights to this courtyard, which means that oftentimes he may want to come and do something in the courtyard that is quote unquote private that he doesn't want me to see, and he's not going to be able to do it because I'm going to be there on my chair, and he can't ask me to leave. But so, so at any point in time, I could come there and sit in the courtyard and invade his privacy. But yet, I'm still not allowed to build a window. Why not? Because the Gemara says, which means that um, until now, I had. I, I had somewhat privacy, meaning so long, any time that you weren't sitting in there on your, on, on your zero-gravity chair just watching me, um, then, I, then I, I knew I had privacy and I could do whatever I wanted. Now that you have that window, at any time of the day and night, I have to be um, aware of the potential of for you to be watching me. You so, have doors in the courtyard. So... I'm just, I'm just well, the doors are closed. I know. I was just saying. You yeah. Have access you have access. You can come whenever you want, but you can't build the window facing it because, like this, like this, I know that when you're not there, you're not there. Right. Okay. So that's the first. Um, that's the first half of the mission, which certainly is, again, if you're coming from a point of view of contrasting halacha to American law. Um, certainly, there's a, chiddush, a tremendous chiddush over there in the 
responsibility in, in the sanctity of privacy in the in the in the responsibility that I have towards somebody else so not to come and again I could say I'm not going to look I'm, I just want the window for extra light but just the fact that I have the window which gives me the opportunity to happen to notice what's going on in the courtyard is something which the halacha prescribes now um, we'll get soon to the next uh, to the other second half of that same Mishnah but <coughs> there is another halach in the Gemara that says if one's roof adjoins a neighbor's courtyard that means that the my you know it's sort of staggered or built on a hill or something and my roof is parallel adjoins to his backyard yeah? or to his courtyard now the roof is um, a place where very little activity happens, right? You, people maybe use the roof to collect water or to put out fruit and stuff to dry, but it wasn't it wasn't a place where there was common commonly a lot of traffic. Whereas his courtyard, that's his that's his you know that, that's where he does things. So the 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 it is the responsibility. Uh, so here we're going even further. Not only am I not allowed to build a window. I'm obligated to build up a, to build a wall on top of my roof on the, on the side of my roof to block me so I'm obligated to do it and I'm obligated obviously to undertake the expenses involved in that in order to protect my neighbor from me being privy or privy privy to 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 what he's doing in the same place talking about the courtyard again his no, this is a different case. This is where my roof is parallel to his, to his, to his personal case. Right. So, again, um, this perhaps underscores even further the responsibility that uh, uh, the, the responsibility that I have toward his privacy where I have the obligation to construct, not just to not build a window, but to construct a mechitza, to construct a barrier which would protect him from my eyes. Right? In halachic uh, terminology, this is called hezekriya, uh, visual damage, which means the damage that is uh, that occurs by me looking, which, uh, which again, it's not necessarily a monetary measurable damage, but it's an invasion of privacy. You took away his privacy. Right. Now, then the Mishnah continues and says, That when we're building a courtyard, and we're each building houses on either side of the courtyard, we have to make sure not to open, that uh, my, my door shouldn't be directly opposite his door, and that my window shouldn't be directly opposite the, his window. Right? You can't have Oh! Bob, what do you mean you can't open? You can't have any windows. Right. Well, you can't have a window on. The, the, the first half of the Mishnah said you can't have any windows opening into the courtyard facing the courtyard. Yeah, it's the same Mishnah. It's the very same Mishnah. Yeah. Yeah, but that would be even in an area that's not the chutzer that you can't have windows right next to each other, across from each other, like that, right? Right, but we said before. Not the co- I mean, there might not even be a courtyard there. No, lo yiftach adam lechatzar hashutfin. 
It's the same Mishnah. It's the same Mishnah that talks about. First, I read in them through right? So. Oh. There's a difference between new construction and old construction. Well, this is, so the truth is it's not uh, it's not clear that it would be a difference between new construction and old construction. One second. Now, so one way of understanding this apparent contradiction, which again gives tremendous insight into into the degree of responsibility, uh, to the degree of the sanctity of privacy, is that the di- that, that the first halach in the Mishnah that I'm allowed to have a construct a window facing the chotzer is subject to. It's, it's not an absolute. It's not a prohibition. It's more. It's, it's kind of the other guy's prerogative. And so if the other guy gives me express permission that he doesn't mind that I build a window over there, then I would be allowed to build a window facing the chatzar if he gives me express permission to do so. However, a window facing a window, a door facing a door where I could peer into his house, then even if he gives me express permission to do so, I'm not allowed to. Right? That's something, obviously, which has no parallel whatsoever in American law, in American law, privacy is my right, and if I want to invite somebody else into my to invade my privacy, then it's not then, then I have invited him to do it, so he's not invading anymore, right? And Halacha says no, even if he gives me express permission to open to bu- to build a window opposite my window, um, it is it is it is uh, immoral or w- would corrupt society by allowing other people to peer into my home. Um, so, and of course, this, is, uh, this, this brings to mind the words of Bilam, how goodly are your tents, Jacob, which Rashi says that he saw that the tents uh, were not facing each other. Now, how does that answer the question? We already said that you can't have a window facing the courtyard at all. Right, but that's Nitin Lamechila. If he ta- if he gives me permission to have a window facing the courtyard, I can. But if he get, but a window facing his window or a door facing his door, even if he gives me express permission to do so, I'm not allowed to. Right now. Isn't the lashon not that he just mentioned permission? Again? Isn't the lashon that he just mentioned not shalavit lefet? Good. No, lo yiftach adam lechatz. This is lo. Ah, this is lo. Okay. Now, before we continue, I'll just sort of point out how does this. Uh, these halachas express themselves nowadays, right? It's uh, certainly these halachas of building a front door opposite a front door, and these things are not um, commonly observed nowadays. So there are various explanations to given to some leniency in these areas. Um, first of all, the Mishnah is talking about moving into a, uh, constructing a home, not moving into a home that already exists with these properties. So that would certainly be 
um, a heter for no, when you buy a house, you don't need to you don't need to refrain from buying a house that's for whose front door is opposite your neighbor's front door, or which has a window from where you could see into your neighbor's backyard, right? So that certainly helps with a lot of cases, but it doesn't um, at all um, give uh, leniency for the phenomena that's uh, very common actually in this neighborhood, where people build their own homes, uh, new construction, yeah, they design their own homes. And it may even be possible that if you look around town, you might find well, a couple of houses that have a window that if you stand at that window, you could see into your neighbor's backyard. Or that the front door is opposite their, their, their neighbor's front door, or window opposite their, their window's door. So, just a couple of notes which may shed some light on some leniency is as follows. Number one, considering that there is that this is a right that can be waived, in other words, the first part of it about having a window that faces into that, that from when you could see into somebody else's backyard, right? Is a right that can be waived. It's the window opposite the window we said that can't be waived. To see into his house, that can't be waived. But to see into his courtyard is something that can be waived. So it is universally accepted to have windows that open into courtyards that each that, that each person how do you read this word? T-A-C-I-T-L-Y. Tactically? Tacitly? Like implicitly? Tacitly. Tacitly? Tacitly gives permission for for others to construct a window that will face the courtyard, right? So nowadays, because that's how the way um, construction works, and that all houses have windows that can see into everybody's backyards or from around them, so it's kind of, right, that's just part of society as a whole, has given permission to waive this right, and unless somebody expressly um, um, tells you not you to, we sort of assume that this has been done. Now, what about a door opposite a door? So, um, he brings him from Piskei Cheshen. Piskei Cheshen is Rabbi Bloy, which very... Technically, we're supposed to say like, so you're building a house. I mean, most of them are just the way communities work. Your your door is probably going to be right opposite the one right. across from you. You should move it a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left. Right. So well, he just it would just look like hold on. So so the so Benigay doors he brings here from Pischachreshim from Rabbi Yaakov Bloy. That he writes, today generally the front door of your home opens into a hall or antechamber, a general a place generally not used for private activities. In Talmudic times, however, the front door of a home usually opened directly into the home's main room. The minimum built-in standard of privacy that was achieved in the past by misaligning the doors is achieved today by having an antechamber or hallway in the front of the home. So that's not, it's like, it's not really their, their door. Right. It's not the door to their bedroom, basically. Or to the, even to the living room. The whole house was basically one, one room. Right. <laughs> um, what about windows? Today, windows have shades, and front doors are usually closed. Talmudic times, before the advent of the light bulb and air conditioning, doors and windows were often left open for lighting and air purposes. The minimum threshold of privacy was achieved then by misaligning doors and windows, is achieved today by keeping doors closed and lowering the blinds. That's why we have Israel Altshuland in town from Chicago, Windy City Blinds. The blinds what? Are very the blinds are very important. You don't move on. Right, of course. We're giving a plug. If you need blinds, contact Israel Altshul from Windy City Blinds. I feel like Avi Mela did not follow this halacha when he appeared into Yitzchak. So Absolutely. But Rashi puts the blame over there on, 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 on Yitzchak.
Yeah, I mean, I guess there's fault to go around. Right. <laughs> we should be more careful, but that guy shouldn't be looking at people with us. Right. Now, yes. <laughs> okay. Now is Azoi. Um, another area where we see um, the, in the, the importance or the sanctity of privacy in Halacha is a Gemara which says, and it's quoted in Shulchan Aruch and some of the Nuvav, the Altarebbe brings it to Shulchan Aruch, that call Masha, anything that your friend tells you, there is a default application that something that somebody else has told you, even if he doesn't specifically say that this is a secret, please don't tell anyone, and even if that information has no, doesn't implicate anybody else, the default is that if somebody tells you something, you assume that this is not to be repeated to others. Right? Um, unless he gives you permission to do so. One of the interesting discussions in this area is about husband and wife. Like sometimes somebody will tell you something and with, 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 which is assumed to be private and Yeah, so, so that, that's a sensitive area, and it's certainly recommended. I actually recently had an experience where I had a, conversa- a private conversation with somebody, and I asked him for permission to record the conversation for myself, and he gave me permission to record it as long as I would not share the recording with anybody else, which I committed to do. And then he said, accept your wife. Now, in truth, right? You know, that was an important thing for him to say. And if he hadn't said it, I wouldn't have sh- shared it with my wife. Yeah? Um, and I think, especially, I mean, we're going to talk more about uh, perhaps clergy or rabbinic, that whole um, genre. But I think in general that sometimes we have an assumption that something that we know, even if it's private, you know, me and my wife are one unit, of course I can share with her. Yeah? <laughs> But often, that's something which, which needs more, perhaps, I think also you have to assume that the default is no, and you have to, you have to perhaps something which requires more uh, guidance from an experienced rabbi who knows those halachas well. Because there are so. some exceptions when it comes to wives, like for example, um, if you're, you're like, let's say have, you have some kind of animosity towards someone, usually you're not supposed to kind of talk to people about this person, I had this issue with this person. Right. I think there's some level of permission in that case. There is you something. Hear, there something. is something. I don't. I'm not, I think from Wolvosner writes something. There is from contemporary Poskim certain leniencies in that area, but not some. Not something that I'm familiar enough with. Not when it comes to privacy, but in yeah. some areas of halacha, there is some permission that you have with your wife, and you don't have another with other people. Right. That might be a mental health reason. So again, we have something which is a halacha, a responsibility, which I don't believe that there's necessarily a parallel to this in, 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 in secular law, um, that if I know so that, that I'm, not allowed to, I'm not allowed to repeat something, yeah, in, that's not, of course we're not allowed to talk Lashon Hara, but here we're not talking about Lashon Hara. You're not allowed to repeat something that, 
but you happen to know. Um, recording there is recording. Ah? Recording, there is laws. Yeah, there are laws about recording conversations. And there's different state laws. There's different, yeah, if you need... Parties are one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Halacha talks about, about, I don't know, we don't have recordings, but... No. Is there... Anything that we well, look at for that? Yes, the Khaira the, the a parallel for recording would be Khairim Dabai Nagashim. Like a letter, yeah. Right? In other words, recording somebody listening to their conversations, um, would Lukhaira be an infringement of the Khairim Dabai Nagashim of reading somebody else's letters? Lukhaira it would be the same uh, same thing. Now, there is an exception. There is an exception to the to the responsibility of privacy in halacha, which is, in general terms, deduced from the possibly seilich rochel barmecha, not to gossip, right? It's all included under the general uh, prohibition against gossip, and that is the continuation of that very same possibly samil al dam which literally means not to stand by as somebody else is dying. Um, but Halacha expands this even further that any, any that prevent any type of damage to prevent any type of damage I have to speak. So if I if something that I know could help somebody else be saved either from physical harm, being killed or just being harmed physically, or from the financial harm, or getting involved in a shidduch that's not a, that, that you know the guy has mental issues and I know that they're dating and. and obligation to tell, um, or financial harm, etc., or spiritual harm, right? I'll give some examples, maybe, right? Then I would be obligated to divulge that information. Oh, right. So, so, ah, uh, so, 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 how does this, uh, how does this look now? So, the, 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 what you have to be careful with is that even when halacha mandates that you do divulge information, there are, it's always a good idea to check, to talk it over with a rabbi who's familiar with the halachas, because there's so many ifs and buts involved. Um, but, uh, um, first of all, you have to make sure that you're, you're not exaggerating and not repeating any details of the, of the, of the, of the story that... Um, that uh, are not relevant. So, for example, if I see you about to enter a business deal with a certain individual who I know has uh, been jailed three times for um, fraudulent uh, business activities, then I have to tell you that because otherwise, right, because I, I'm, I'm seeing you throw your money down the drain. If I know that he's a Ponzi scheme or whatever it is. But I, I, in that conversation, I'm not allowed to mention the fact that that guy... Um, had uh, has been married three times and had affairs with all of his wife. You know, like that's not relevant to your. That's not relevant to to his financial. I need to let you know that this is not a safe place for you to put your money. But I don't need to tell you. I'm not allowed to tell you um, other parts, other 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 elements of of. Basically, then you would be allowed to tell him that this guy has done this three times and taken everyone's money. Right. You can't do that, but nothing else personal. Right. No, and, and, and your intentions have to be l'shem shomayim. You your intentions are not allowed to be because you need to let out the steam. It has to be in order to help Nothing that. peripheral. Right. Just, just the, the facts. So, yeah, I think they bring here and all also, the... Uh, 
He's also ugly. It's not not, not not relevant. Okay. And you could like mention all the details of how he defrauded people or whatever. That you could do. So again, I'm not familiar. Let's see. Let's see if he brings his list. It's not like good <laughs> he, he, he does bring it here. He brings here the list from the Chavitzchayim. Here we go. Um, okay. Number one, do not exaggerate the dramatization See, in telling me about these deficiencies, one's motive must be to purely to prevent some loss or damage, not even incidentally to pass on a juicy piece of gossip. D, even if all the above conditions are met, one should still seek an alternative to being the bearer of, of, of things. The Gemara tells us, when Yeshua prayed to the Almighty to reveal him, uh, okay. In other words, if there's a way to do it without uh, being the bearer, directly sort of to try and get out of it uh, okay uh, e perhaps the most elusive and difficult condition to meet is the last one of the Chafetz Chaim stipulates that one has to gauge the effects of one's words will have upon the person spoken about sometimes the harm that will come to the subject through such revelation will outweigh the prevention of harm Sorry. To the other party. Okay, but as you can tell, on the one hand, you have a responsibility to divulge information that is going to um, save somebody else. On the other hand, you have to be very careful in so doing. Now, a couple of uh, again. Now, in secular law, you do have a. Uh, I, I mean, if you're if you're aware of information, you can be. Um, I, I don't know that you have you, that you. I, I don't know if there's a, a, a place to say that you have an obligation to save somebody else from that. Uh, from, you know, to tell them that. But but um, you can be in the certain circumstances subpoenaed in court to testify about information that you happen to know. Now, however. Of course, in secular law, there's no concept of saving somebody from spiritual harm, which there is in halacha, and I'll give an example in a moment. And secondly, where it gets a little bit um, uh, challenging in the inter- interaction between being from Jew in America, following halacha and American law, is something known as the clergy penitent privilege. That means that there is a... Um, in all professional areas, you have in therapy or medicine, you have HIPAA, and also in, in, in clergy, that there is this concept called the clergy penitent privilege, where, which was in, enacted originally, the first state that incorporated that law was New York State in the early 1800s, which was originally, it only applied to Catholic clergy, later it was extended to include all clergy, because in Catholicism, there is the concept of a, uh, how to call it, confession. And according to Catholic law, if a priest, if somebody confesses to the priest that he has plans to murder somebody, mm-hmm. the priest would be obligated 
to keep silent, right? Which of course in halacha, uh, the the contrary is tr- is true. And there was actually a very famous case in your hometown uh, with Rabbi Moshe Tendler. Um, it's called Drelach versus People or People versus Drelach. Where uh, you familiar with this case? Mm-hmm. Where there was a young man, I believe his name was Drelach, um, who was uh, sitting shiva for his wife, who uh, died in uh, some mysterious circumstances. And it later came to light through conversations that he had People versus Drelach, 1986. The defendant stands convicted of the brutal stabbing murder of his 23-year-old pregnant wife. Oh. Remember this? Lives in the same block as me. Or it's, yeah. Yeah. I lived on Remsen, this family lived in South Remsen, I believe. I heard story. I didn't know it was a big thing. He raises a number of con- contentions in support of his claim that his conviction must be set aside in a new trial order, the principle of which concerns an alleged violation of his privilege under CPLR, which is a client, um, what's it called, the clergyman penitent privilege, uh, because basically the, the, the way the story came to light was because this individual, uh, while or after he was sitting shiva, came to have some talks with Ramoshira Tendler, where he was talking about dreams that he had about how he stabbed his wife and the details and how he did it and the dream also told him that he's going to stab other people and uh, it became very obvious to uh, Rabbi Tendler that this was a dangerous person who had murdered his wife and possibly had uh, intentions of murdering other people and he reported it to uh, the authorities and uh, this individual claimed that uh, now in that particular case, um, Rabbi Tendler got out of the lawsuit um, by proving that he wasn't, uh, that this person was not coming to him um, for religious counsel, he was coming to him for legal advice. Um, but um, regardless, there would be other, I mean, again, because, I mean, the, the problem is that when it comes to Yiddishkeit, where on the one hand, the person could claim um, the, that he has the right for the clergyman penitent privilege, um, but if the Rav feel, uh, feels that he has an obligation under halacha to divulge the information of the Sabbath of the Mariacha, so then you run into the free, what's it called, freedom of exercise clause, right? Where there's a, where, right, freedom of religion is a, is a, is a, uh, so technically in this case, I mean, he could have sued him and one, because he already killed his wife, and it's not relevant to something in the future. It's no, it was, it was because relevant. he was talking about stabbing, potentially stabbing other people. Yeah. But if that was the only, that was the only factor, it would confidentiality would make it maybe illegal for him to say it? For him to pass well, it? Uh, again. Usually you're obligated to say here, you're not obligated as a rabbi to say, or that, you're, that there's an actual prohibition you're not allowed to the rabbi to divulge. So different states have it differently, whether the... Pr- cr- the question is what I was understood at the form that they just the rabbi has no obligation to inform the authorities. So in different states So in in some states it's the privilege of the clergyman and in some states it's the privilege of the penitent. Different states have it different. And then they just change it in uh, That could be, I, I don't know. And the logic is we will, they want Some states have it as both. Some states some states have it that both of them have the the privilege and both of them have to waive it. Some states have one, some states have the other, and some states have both. Again, I'm not... Uh, okay, now, um, 
another case, and I, I spoke about spiritual harm, right? So another very case that became famous is in the case known as Lightman versus Flam. And one of the reasons it became famous was because other cases later on tried to use this to their uh, thing. Where basically there was a woman who uh, had, had confided to Rabbonim um, or Bezdin, whatever, there were certain things about her behavior that they felt it was their responsibility to let the husband know. Now, there is a famous celebrated truth of the Neid of Yehuda, where he argues that if, 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 the Rav, if a woman confides in the Rav that, uh, that she had an affair, which would mean that she's no longer allowed to live with her husband, so is the Rav obligated to tell the husband this information? Because he's obligated to divorce his wife, he's not allowed to live with her anymore. So in that case, the Yehuda does come up with arguments that would um, say that the Rav is not obligated to tell the, the, the husband, and this Lady Behuda has been debated. But what if an, another scenario which... Uh, so that's the argument of the Lady Behuda, but he, first of all, he extends it to, therefore you don't have to tell the husband, which is a... It's certainly better from a gash from from out yeah. It's a, it's still the the arguments of the Nevi Yehuda have long been debated and many are the and also the husband doesn't have to believe his wife, but if he does believe her, then he has to divorce her. Right? That case was more complicated, right? It was the the, the son-in-law was having a he lived with the he lived with them and he was having an affair with them with his mother-in-law, who eventually became his mother-in-law. Yeah, and then he wanted to do tshuva and he wanted to know if he should ask the chila from his father-in-law or. Something like that. It's some, it was a crazy case. But let's talk about another case. Uh, this, this, I believe that this was part of the, this case of uh, what's called the flam. What's it called? The Lightman versus flam. I think uh, that the case over there include possi- included possibly uh, relations as well, but also included the fact that she had told the rabbis that she wasn't going to mikvah, so she was lying to her husband and telling him that she had gone to mikvah when in reality she hadn't. So those Rabbanim felt that they had an un- uh, obligation under the laws of the Sabbath of Damriyachah to let the husband know. And she sued the rabbis. Now, again, they won the case um, in the Court of Appeal. At first they lost, but then in the Court of Appeals they won. Um, and it basically because, it seems like, if I understood correctly, it was a religious thing that... Uh, Anyway, um, th- and there's been many cases where there's all sorts of... The point is that there's, there's all sorts of caveats that you could win a case, but you don't want to be brought to court. court. And that's another question. When I have an obligation of to divulge information, and it might come at the cost of me being sued, well, how much... Am, am I obli- do, am I to fulfill that mitzvah and divulge information at risk of being sued? Now, certainly in the extreme case where somebody's life was at risk, like in the case of Rabbi Tendler, he would be mechuyiv to do it, even if that meant he was going to lose his career and be sued for millions of dollars. But would you say the same about saving a husband from living with a wife who wasn't going to mikvah? Or would you say the same about saving somebody from financial harm? So, um, that's, uh, that, th- those are questions which are up for debate, 
Um, those are questions which are up for debate. Ask your rabbi in confidence. Um, certainly, um, if you are a rabbi, um, you want to. Th- th- there are steps that you can take that would uh, preempt preempt this. Uh, one of the things. I mean, first of all, you can say. You can you can tell the person expressly that yes, you have my word of confidence, except in certain certain scenarios. Another thing that can sometimes ha- be done is to have a third party present in the room during the conversation. But then the question becomes that there have been cases which have been brought to court where the third party in the room was the rabbi's wife, and where the per- the person who sued claimed that the rabbitson was also there. She's, she's also clergy. So that became, uh, that, 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 and, and different, different courts have ruled differently in those things over the years. Now, um, two, 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 two more points to ponder, which uh, perhaps adds to the, to the complication. Um, and that is that, uh, as follows. Number one, even when you do have an obligation to divulge information, um, to divulge information, you have to. You also have an obligation to, as much as possible, minimize the chilul Hashem involved. So, for example, there is a Gemara, which says that Rabbi Yochanan had a uh, had a wound, which was uh, it was a toothache, but it was considered something which was very dangerous, and he went to a certain matronisa, a female doctor, who had um, discovered the secret medicine to treat this ailment, and uh, it was a three-day, it was like an antibiotic issue, it needed, it needed to be done over a period of a number of days, so she did it on Friday and she did it on Shabbos, and then he said, oh, sorry, on Thursday and on Friday, and then he said to her, well, what am I going to do on Shabbos, I can't come here on Shabbos, uh, I guess it was fine, I don't know exactly what the circumstance was, so she says, don't worry, I, you know, you'll, you'll be fine without having it on Shabbos, so she sa- he said, uh, well, what if I do need it? So she said, "Well, I can't tell you because then the word's going to get out, and I'm going to, I'm going to lose my my secret." So she said to him, "Make an oath that you will swear to me that you won't divulge this this secret uh, recipe." So he said, "I'm making an oath that to the to the God of Israel I won't reveal this." So she told him the secret, and then he went home and he made his medicine on Shabbos. Not only did he make his medicine on Shabbos, in those days the custom was that there was nothing called Pirka, there was uh, Shabbos, everybody came to the Bismedrish for the rabbi to teach Torah, and when he had the attention of the entire community, he said, by the way, if anybody ever has this specific ailment, here is the ingredients for the magic potion that will um, heal it. So the Gemara asks, what do you mean? He, ma- he made an oath. That he wouldn't do it. So the Gemara says, no, he tricked her. The oath, he didn't say that he, he said, I won't reveal it to the God of Israel. I don't need to reveal it to the God of Israel. The God of Israel already knows this. But I'm revealed it to the people of Israel. Then the Gemara says, Hashem. Certainly, um, this would be, uh, uh, this would result in the Chilul Hashem, where she sees that the rabbi made an oath and then flippantly went and thing. And the Gemara says, the that he told her. That means after he made the oath, then she told him. And then before he left, he says, sir, by the way, I'm really sorry to tell you, and I know you're going to be very upset, but this is information which I am obligated to divulge. This is information that could potentially save many people's lives, um, and therefore I'm going to have to tell people. And so, um, again, when we come to this 
when we confront this tightrope, so to speak, of uh, first of all keeping all the halachas properly, but then even more so how they interact with the American law, we have to as much as possible do, we have to keep the halacha, but we also have to do whatever we can to avoid Chil Hashem, right? So uh, we certainly don't recommend doing anything that's going to get yourself into a lawsuit. Um, and uh, even if you win the lawsuit, it's not a good idea. Um, but, uh, but, 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 and you certainly don't make a Chil Hashem and undermine, um, that's in this case, the rabbinate, yeah? Um, but, uh, the institution of the rabbinate. But sometimes you may have a chiv to do so. So you have to, you have to, a rabbi would have to, would have to be smart uh, again, and, you know, to, to preempt that. I'm not sure if it would, uh, I'm not sure, well, could be. I, I don't know if there's a chayla b'fanei. I don't know if it mamash met all the criteria of classic Hashem. Now, there is another another point to be made, and that is what happens if the, for example, I mean, just to, just just to apply this case of the medicine to modern modern scenario. Yeah, today the way these things work is you have medical schools and pharmaceutical companies that invest millions and millions of dollars and many years of work into developing uh, treatments for certain ailments. And the way these things work is that before it's patent, is how you say that word? Uh, before it's patent, then it's kept under, uh, under strict secret. Nobody's allowed to divulge it, right? Now, what happens if I have the cure to COVID? Right, I have I have access. I could I could produce a billion vaccines tomorrow that would make the whole. How many people are there in America, Harry? How are you doing? I think like something like close to four hundred million. All right, I could produce I could produce four hundred million vaccines tomorrow that would make the whole America immune to COVID. Right. The problem is that I haven't yet processed the patent, and I have to wait another three months for that to happen, and. Um, in the meantime, uh, right? So the problem is that if you then say, well, you're going to save people's lives and, uh, and, and you're obligated to release this, this information to the public, that that would, in the long run, that would be disruptive to more people's lives because um, it would undermine the whole s- fabric and the structure of the pharmaceutical industry because the pharmaceutical industry needs those laws of patent and, 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 and privacy in order to be able to, to, to make the money to survive and continue to um, produce uh, more. Now, I'm not getting into all the conspiracies about the integrity and the honesty of various pharmaceutical companies, but at least in principle, that's, um, that's certainly a consideration which has to be taken into account. And then, so, so, so just to finish up and tie this up a little bit to what, so, some of the current uh, debate about uh, the government tracking my information. Now, the interesting thing is that even though um, the prohibition against repeating uh, information that I know 
is completely waived in the face of in the face of saving somebody else from harm. When it comes to when it comes to reading other people's communication, private communi- yeah, when it comes to reading a letter or message addressed to somebody else, then it's not so clear that that, that would be um, the, the discussion of the Pesachim. It's not so clear. If I have a letter, if I see somebody's, if somebody asks me to deliver this letter to someone, and I suspect that that letter might have information that could damage somebody else and I could save by, 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 uh, by that, that person by reading the letter, so then it, possibly under circumstances I would be allowed to destroy the, le- the letter and not deliver it, but um, the Paschim are very reluctant to give me permission to open the letter and read it. And so there's really two questions over here, for various reasons, because at the end of the day you're going to become privy to to information, but by reading the letter, you're going to come, become privy to information that's more than just that. That's more than just what I need to know, right? Because there might be other information in the letter. So certainly, when we're talking about uh, government tracking or using my phone for my location or listening to my conversations, you know, like often you see ads on your phone about things that you were talking about, right? Um, certainly. So, so, so I think that you could say that there's two questions, uh, so to speak, right? If the government, the government asked the Rav, right? So there's two questions. One is, are they allowed to collect that information? And I think it would, it, it, it may, it may, I think it, one could safely argue very strongly for the case that no, that, um, that, that, that even though the, the government wants to use this information for, uh, for constructive purposes such as um, tracking national security, they have no right to, it would be a violation of <laughs> for them to do so. Again, I, it could be that government has more power than that even in halacha. But a cer- a certainly halakhically a, a workaround for that problem would be for the government to be forthright about it. If they tell me, you buy a cell phone, you're entitled to have a cell phone, but know ye that when your cell phone is there, we're going to be listening, or, or Facebook, or Google, any of these companies, tell you outright, we're giving you a product, we're giving you a cell phone, and we are going to use it to listen to your conversations and give you ads based on that and track your location. So if they say that, then it's up to me. If I don't want it, then don't buy the cell phone. Then if I choose to buy it, and to use the services that Google and Facebook, etc., offer, then I am getting myself in, then I've, then I've given them permission to read my letters. That's it. The second question is, well, now that they have the information, are they allowed to use it? And I think that as long as they can be trusted, which again, yeah, as long as they can be trusted to use the information, uh, uh, to, uh, can they use the information? I think, and the answer would be um, that so long as they're using this information in the interest of protecting the public, whether it's uh, national security or in the case of COVID, to be able to protect uh, national health, yeah, all of these things, um, then that's what they would be allowed to do. The problem then becomes, well, um, what happens if they abuse their power and then, then does that cause further damage by undermining governments, etc., etc., much like the case of that I gave before about uh, divulging the secret cure to COVID, um, which would undermine the pharmaceutical industry. So again, that's sort of a, a, a more subjective question that 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 we could uh, obviously have more room to argue about.
Abkalf. Every time, Minik. 